Howdy, folks. This is Kelly Carlin, and this is Waking from the American Dream. And normally right about now, I push a button and play a song. But today I'm going to do something a little different because I have a singer-songwriter on later on the show. So my producer, Barbara Roman, who's listening in Malibu. Hi, Barbara. I'm going to do uh, an essay of mine that I normally do live in front of a large audience. But today I have an audience of three, which is fantastic. Thank you so much. And my my heart rate just went up because I went, oh, my God, I'm doing an essay now. <laughs> so uh, the name of this essay is called Liminal. And uh, this is what my friend Taylor Negron calls a Hollywood Gothic Christmas story. Liminal, from the Latin limen, and defined in most dictionaries as a threshold or being in an intermediate state, phase, or condition. In other words, liminal is that strange and mostly uncomfortable place where the old ways are dying and the new ones have not yet been born. Being there can feel odd, frightening, and at times impossible. It is like having gone through the looking glass, where big is small, up is down, and giving tax breaks to the rich help the poor. I have been in this upside-down place quite a few times in my life. In 1975, my whole family was in this liminal space. That autumn, our family's harvest came in the shape of my mother finally deciding to go to rehab. After years of struggling with alcohol, cocaine, and Valium, she was down to 87 pounds, had not eaten in weeks, and really had no choice but to let go. It was either death of the ego or death of her body. Either way, she had to surrender. That Christmas, my alive, sober, and doing pretty darn well mother insisted on getting us out of town so as not to replicate the Christmas before that went well enough on the actual day, but didn't really end well. Actually, it kind of never really ended. It was a peculiar kind of thing. That year, I thought Christmas would never end. It wasn't until the week before Valentine's Day that it finally ended when my mother managed to take the tree and trimmings down. And thank God, not only was it a major fire hazard, but I just didn't know what to say to my friends after mid-January when they would come over and see that the stockings were still hung with care. So off to Hawaii we went. More specifically, the Kahala Hilton on Oahu, the place where in the 1970s Hollywood went for their Christmas paradise. And it was paradise. There were dolphins swimming in the inner lake of the hotel. Poolside waitresses were willing to bring my mom and I virgin strawberry daiquiris all day long. And most importantly, no drug-induced insanity for miles around. I was very, very happy that I was finally getting my real Hawaiian vacation. Not like the one we had only a few years back when in 1973 at the Napili Kai in Maui, my parents brandished knives at each other over the fact that my dad had hidden his stash of Coke and would not let my mom have any. In order to stop this insanity, I had written out a UN-style peace treaty to get them to stop fighting and arguing. It stated, I, George Carlin slash Brenda Carlin, will not drink alcohol or snort cocaine for the remainder of this family vacation. I had them each sign on the dotted line. The treaty lasted 
all of 30 minutes when my father went into the bathroom and shut the door and my mother accused him of bogarting the blow. Of course, she reacted by going straight to the bar and ordering another bottle of Matus Rosé for herself. There was no paradise for me that year. Luckily, though, at the Kahala Hilton, we saw no cocaine, no alcohol, and no knives being brandished. Instead, we got Steve and Edie and Sammy Davis Jr. Unbeknownst to us, Steve and Edie and Sammy were doing a New Year's Eve show in the ballroom, and well, because we were who we were and they were who they were, we got to sit with them at their table for dinner and the show. The show. A perfect 70s trying to be hip, but oh so schmaltzy, Steve and Edie. With, of course, the highlight of the night, Sammy Davis Jr. singing The Candyman. After the show, we were all standing around schmoozing. I was standing with my father and Sammy Davis Jr. They were talking about all that had been going on in their lives, and my dad mentioned my mom's sobriety and both their battles with cocaine. Sammy chimed in about his own troubles with it and how he was trying to move on from its insanity. I stood there, nodding and relating to what they were saying. I was only 12 years old, had never done cocaine, but I also knew the all-too-harsh reality of its promise of paradise. Our sweet little Carlin family was immersed in the liminal that Christmas. Emerging out of the dark ages of chemical-fueled chaos, not quite sure who we would become in the future, but knowing at least we had one now. That future ended 22 years later when my mother died of liver cancer. The long-term faraway price for all those years of Matus Rosé and pharmaceutical cocaine. That year, 1997, it was I who would send what was left of the Carlins to Hawaii. I could not face Christmas in Los Angeles. My mother, you see, was Christmas. She was one of those ones who bought you too much of exactly what you wanted, and I would walk away from Christmas morning feeling abundant and well taken care of. Christmas without my mother seemed impossible. So my father rented a house on the big island of Hawaii so that we could get away to a place that could hold us in our darkness, in our winter, in our newest version of the liminal void. You know, the big island can do just that, for she holds the manifestation of life itself, the fiery and volcanic goddess Pele. We took a helicopter ride to go and see her, Pele, and her volcano, Kilauea. We flew over the live volcano where there was a very large hole in the ground where we could see the most primal, elementary aspect of life on this planet, liquid rock. Its energy was like nothing I had ever encountered, raw, unflinching creation right before my eyes. I was witnessing the very act of manifestation itself. My body-mind felt like it had been entered by a force beyond anything I could ever imagine. I knew I had just seen the ultimate unknown known otherness of life itself. At that very same moment, I looked over at my dad and saw that he was holding a small picture of my mom, angled so that she could see Pele, too. My heart burst open with a love so huge that I had no idea that it could feel something that big. And in that moment, I knew that human love, aching raw, cut you in half, human love, was part of the same creation inside that volcano. That both these forces were equal in their ability to build something up, 
and to cut us in two. Love is the only thing that can be your bridge while in the liminal. Two and a half years ago, I found myself back in Hawaii, Maui. While there, I decided to visit the Nepali Kai, that scene of the crime 35 years ago where I naively tried to contain the chaos of the Carlins. I wanted to see if there were any lingering effects of those dark days left on my soul. As I walked through the resort and on its beach, I was utterly amazed that all of the pain, the terror, and the confusion were gone, dropped off, released, and transformed through decades of seeking, searching, and healing. I don't normally believe in miracles, but I did in that moment. A door shut, an era was over, a wounded self was healed. Suddenly it was clear. The Carlins were whole again. I called my dad. He rarely picked up his phone, and I was ready to leave a message when he said, Hey there, kiddo. Dad, guess where I just was? The Napili Kai. Wow he said. I shared with him how there was the space there with no regret or bitterness or anything. It was done. I was done. We were done. There was a slight pause and a quiet in his voice. That's great. That's really great. And then out of nowhere, I said to him, and dad, I want you to know that the parts of ourselves, our souls that we left there 35 years ago, I just reclaimed them for us. It really is done. There was silence on the other end of the phone. Tears streamed down my face. All my dad could say was, yes. A deep calm was held between us for a few moments. Nothing really needing to be said because we both knew how long we had been fighting those long-ago demons and how we both knew that finding peace with this past of ours had been a long, long journey. As I drove down that road, looking out at the bluest ocean ever, I knew that I had just connected with my father in a way that I had always longed to connect with him, deeply from our hearts and not hiding one inch of ourselves from each other. I felt like all of me was present with him, and I was his equal, his teacher, his daughter, and his sole companion. I wanted this feeling to last forever. This is the last conversation I had with my father. Three days later, he was dead, and I stepped back into the liminal.
That beautiful song is uh, by Tracy Newman, who is my guest today. Hi, Tracy. Hi. Welcome to our little studio. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Tracy and I met at a really cool event uh, called Women Who Write, and it's organized by this woman, Vicki Abelson, who has authors come in, and and she always has someone playing music, and, and Tracy was there playing music once, and uh, Tracy and I went out to lunch and bonded. And <laughs> and now we're kind of like in the same, we hang with the same people and play at all the same gigs. It's and, our whole new group of friends. Well, maybe not for you, but for me, it it's It is all kind new. of for me, too, actually. Really? Yeah. Did and you know Lorraine before? I did not know Lorraine. Oh. No, I ended up meeting Lorraine after you. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we've this, this kind of family. It's I talk about it here. I talk about the Polymind commune oh, pretty often here, because I always thank them at the end for supporting my insanity. Uh, so, but I wanted to have you on because, uh, part of what I love talking about here is people who are creative and all the different ways that manifests in their life. And when I look at your, uh, your span, resume, your resume, yes, <laughs> it's, it's quite fascinating and very cool. And so I, I always like to start at the beginning too. So, uh, just to let you know, Tracy is, uh, one of the founding members of the Groundlings, which if you don't know what that is, that is, uh, one of the more important improv sketch comedy, 
schools, think tanks, uh, creative love machines where people come out of that end up on places like Saturday Night Live, like her sister Lorraine did, um, and uh, Phil Hartman, Phil Hartman, John Lovett, um, Phil Lamar, I think even yes. from Mad TV, Julia Sweeney, um, <laughs> just a few names, <laughs> Will Ferrell. Yeah, okay, no, there, <laughs> that one too. Yeah, and I forget the new ones, but you know, yeah, the young kids, yeah, these kids these days. But you were part of the original grouping of that. That it was a class. Oh, okay. It started out as a class. Gary Austin had this class at a place called the Cellar Theater in nineteen around seventy two, and uh, actually, I brought Lorraine there. You know, um, I didn't even know Lorraine did that. I mean, here, you know, this is my sister. Right, you know? right. And I knew she was funny. Right. But, uh. She wasn't like going for drama school or anything. Well, she had just come back from Paris. She'd studied at the Marcel Marceau School and she had, in Beverly High, she was in, in productions. But, you know, she had never really expressed the desire to be in show business. And, right. um, she's younger than I am. And I brought her in there and, they were doing these things where they were giving, um, everybody had these adjustments up there that they had to, you know, act out in a scene. And she was given that she had, a, um, necro, what, what is that thing where you have fainting spells? I can't think what it's yeah, called. It's like, I, I don't know. It's not necrophilia because that's where you fuck <laughs> dead, dead people. people. That I would be quite an adjustment, actually. Uh, there's some kind of <laughs> Anyway, she, she got, had fainting spells and the way she physically fainted, because I know her, she's from Beverly Hills, like I do. She fainted so carefully. She, like each part of her body was going down to the floor until she reached the floor with her hands and then she would carefully get down. She didn't want to bruise herself. So funny. Anyway, um, so, you know, that's where the grounding started. And then we, we gave ourselves a name. Lorraine and I wanted it to be the working class. And <laughs> from Beverly, being from Beverly Hills and all. Everybody voted us down. Lorraine's going to hate that I told her that she's from Beverly Hills. When you have her on here, she, you have to make her fess up. I will. <laughs> so anyway, that's the groundlings. So, so that's great. And, and, and actually, since we're talking about your, your dear sister Lorraine, uh, let's play one of your songs here, which is, strangely enough, entitled Lorraine. And I was telling Tracy, I think this is one of the first songs I heard you do. And if you've, oh, ne- if right you've, at Women Who Write. Yeah, yeah, Women Who Write. And if you've never heard a love song to a sister, well, you're going to hear one right now. This is Lorraine by Tracy Newman. <laughs> Thirty years ago, just a toothpick of a girl Was making the whole world laugh Live from New York every Saturday night For a solid gold hour and a half Blinded by the lights and the backstage drama Never knowing the extent of her fame Till late one night in the lobby of the plaza John Lennon shouted out her name Lorraine Lorraine If you could see yourself now that the dust has 
has settled after all your stumbling. Rising from the rubble, you'd be so glad you're you. If you could see yourself as I do. Watch your two girls swimming as you bask by the pool in the sun. You bring up your hand to shade your eyes, gently caution your little one. Now they're begging you to jump into the pool. You get up and walk slowly to the side. Turn. Back to the water, lift your eyes to the sky, fall straight back with your arms open wide, Lorraine. Lorraine. If you could see yourself now, such a natural mother, like you hopped out of one life. Into another, you'd be so glad they have you. If you could see yourself as I do. I love you, little sister. And how lucky for me, my best friend. Is actually a member of my family. So beautiful. Sorry, I love that last <laughs> I piano. I forgot about that last Damn. night. Damn. Just, it's so beautiful. Thank you. Oh. And that line um, at the beginning where you talk about how she didn't get how their impact on the culture or their fame yet. And here is John, John Lennon, Lennon <laughs> shouting her Lorraine, name. Lorraine. Hey. Wow. What a, what an <laughs> iconic moment. It's just insane. Uh, so your family, were you guys all funny? Were your parents funny? I mean, how did this comedy my, thing my, happen? Um, we have a different father and the same mother. Okay. So, uh, my stepfather was, uh, very funny. He passed away a couple years ago, but, uh, and you know, Lorraine has a twin. Yes. Paul, uh, who's, who has a music group, Dutch Newman and the musical Melodians. Anyway, um, uh, he was very funny. And my mom, you know, was like a singer and dancer before she, at 18, had her first child, which was my, my older brother. And uh, my real father was an actor, you know, mm-hmm. um, but he, he was an alcoholic. So he, he quickly sort of disappeared from mm. the scene. But, yeah, I think it was we kind of were all leaning in that direction, you know. And you both grew up in Beverly Hills? 
Well, um, my mother liked to buy houses and redo them. Uh huh. So we lived in Westwood, Beverly Hills, and even in Culver City okay. at one point. But we lived on every single street in Beverly Hills. Wow. <laughs> Literally. I mean, we, she would redo them while wow. we lived in them. Uh huh. We never lived in a house that wasn't being redone. Right. I mean, you know, I, it's been, I've been 20 years now in the same house. I haven't done anything. <laughs> I, I can't you. stand it. <laughs> I'm slowly doing things like, well, let's paint this little wall in the bathroom <laughs> and then I'll take a month off. <laughs> it's too traumatic. For I never me. fix anything. I can't stand to have a workman in my house. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> Uh, so, so your journey, so you went, you were part of the groundlings and how long did I was there? Like back then you were in the groundlings way longer than you should be. <laughs> now they're in there usually four or five years. We were in there like 15 years. Nice. Cause you know, you're starting something out. It was a long time before, uh, the industry started coming to like every show, which is what eventually happened. Right. Right. You guys became the, uh, the the kind of the uh, I don't know it was the, it was the yeah the the uh, farm yes it was the farm. a farm for Saturday Night Live after a while exactly but really not when I was there when I was there um, I guess Phil and John John Lovitz and a couple of other people were discovered there but I'm uh, you know when Will Ferrell was there they started taking everybody Chris Kattan and right. uh, Will Forte and you know, a lot of the people that are in there now, Chris, Kristen Wiig is from there. And, um, I think Jason Sudeikis might be from there. I don't know. I haven't been around in a while. But. Right. Right. And, and so then you ended up going into writing for television from that place. Yeah. I, you know, what you learn when you're working in an improv company, people think, uh, who aren't in show business probably think, well, we're improvising. We're making it up as we go along all the time. No, what happens usually is you, do a sketch and, you know, you do improvise a sketch and then it's good and right. you realize, hey, this has a beginning, middle and an end. Mm. Let's write it down and mm -hmm. make it better. And I learned rewriting in the groundlings. Uh. And so when, when it came time to, you know, when somebody said, hey, why don't you write a spec script with me? John Stark, my, my writing partner, mm -hmm. uh, we, we wrote a Murphy Brown spec script and sent it to the people at Cheers and they hired us. And that wow. was our first job. Wow. That was an exciting day. That's very cool. That was like, I can't imagine both, getting that phone call. <laughs> no, I can, I'm telling you, it was like, um, I don't know how to explain it. It was, I could see the future. Right. It was that kind of thing. Wow. Cause I knew that John Stark really was funny and he made me laugh. And it was, we didn't have anything to do with each other other than writing. Mm. And so we would get together and we would write and we, then we would be done. Right. You know, it was like, I could see, okay, we can really do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we started on cheers and we just kept going. We, so we wrote together for like 16 or 17 years. Wow. That's fantastic. I, um, I, I, my dad did a sitcom for Fox and my husband and I got to, we wrote a specs. We were, we were writing a bunch of spec scripts at the time because. Mm -hmm. What year was that? This was, remember. uh, dad's was in like, I want to say 94, 95. Yeah. Right Cause there. I made, that wasn't that landlord thing, was it? No, no, of? that was apartment 2C. That was for HBO. Oh. Yeah. No, the, uh, the, the Fox thing was, he was like hung out in an Irish bar and he was a taxi driver and he was uh -huh. just a curmudgeon basically. And, uh, but my my famous uh sitcom career <laughs> well you know during those uh early late 80s early 90s it was it was the lottery ticket like if you could a be an actor or a comedian who got your own sitcom you'd you'd won the yeah. lottery and if you were a writer or a writing team and got on one of those things it's like winning the lottery in, in it hollywood it is like winning the truly, lottery truly because it totally it's insane is. 
It was especially during that time. Exactly. I mean, it, it kind of ended when, when I ended my television career, when I moved on to, back to songwriting, mm-hmm. uh, that wave had crested and was, was long gone. And we, but we had created according to Jim in 2001. Right. And we were still, you know, on yeah. that top of that wave. Yep. Yep. And so, yeah, we, now we, did. we won the lottery. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's there. It's there. I mean, there's some sitcoms still, but. But yeah, I, I, it was funny because Bob and I got a chance. We wrote a spec script for my dad. You did dad. it with your husband? Yes. Bob, okay, yeah. Bob and I were writing partners. We'd done a, a B movie called, um, Devil in the Flesh. Check it out. Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a great B thriller. Who, you know, how do you kill the grandmother type of film? But we got to do, uh, a script for my dad's show, which was really fun. And, uh, and then we were going to become part of the Warner Brothers writing program, which was like this thing that you would invite you in yeah. as writers and they would kind of train you. It's really good. Yeah, yeah it's right. really good. Well, I completely blew the interview because I went in there as my father's daughter and had a total attitude about television and selling out and everything. And I just kind of let it fly. And yeah, uh, yeah the executives, they didn't want to hear about that. <laughs> yeah, you you know what? I was I got in trouble. I was I was not a good girl that day. I really really learned a lot writing <laughs> writing for television. I mean, you really have to really leave your ego yes at the door. Well, and that's the thing was that um I mean, how did you do that? Because there is first of all, it's really um I found it was a real boys club being it in those being room. in those writers rooms. And as a woman, I felt uh, like a second class citizen and a little uncomfortable. And, and then there's, because it's a whole culture that happens inside those rooms. So how did you guys balance, you know, here was my trick. Mm-hmm. I was 10 years older than my writing partner who was a man. Mm-hmm. And so here I was this, this, um, you know, if they had to have a quota, fill a quota of having a woman. Right. I was not only a woman, I was an older woman. Right. And my partner, I mean, I wasn't that old. You could tick off two but, boxes. But I was an older woman. I'm not going to tell you how old, but it would, right. it would give a lot of people hope out there. I can tell you that. <laughs> I was over 40. I'll tell you that much. And my partner was 10 years younger than me and very funny. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're a woman and you want to write television and you think you've got the goods, mm-hmm. Partner with a guy. They get two for one. They get a guy. <laughs> exactly. It is a boys club. And also you have to be one of those women who really loves being one of the guys. Cause yes. I really, really, I loved it in New York and the, you know, when I used to hang out at the improv, even though I wasn't in comedy, I was the girl that sang and played the guitar, but got to hang around. Right. You know, uh, the really funny guys. Yes. And I liked being accepted by them in that way. Yeah. And, um, I don't know what that says about me other than that, you know, that was what my passion was. Yeah. You, you know, know, and it's funny for me because I- I've always hung out with the guys. I yeah. mean, I always find myself at parties and everything surrounded by the guys and usually someone's smoking a joint too. That's usually yeah. my lot. Someone's got marijuana around me. Not that I smoke a lot, but just, it's just, just my fate. And so I love that. But I think for me, you know, it's interesting being, growing up in my kind of, you know, watching my dad being funny all the time. And I, I never got that thing of like wanting to be in a competitive kind of funny atmosphere where I had to, felt like I had to top other people or wanted to top them and that kind of things. So I think that was really intimidating it's for me. It's really, really intimidating. It really is. And, and, and because a lot of those people in the rooms too are like, 
Ivy League grads and they're really smart yeah. and, you know, and not that I'm not smart, but, but it was just very intimidating. So I think my way of kind of backing out of that and not rising to that challenge was, oh, t- TV's beneath me, you know, yeah, or something no, it's, like that. Uh, there's no question about it. It took me years in writing for television to not walk into a room, especially the first time and be intimidated by the youth, number yeah, one, right. and the, the, and the credentials. And they're really quick and funny. It's not a joke. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They're, they're really funny. They're brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know what you have to, uh, for, you know, again, ad- as advice to young people, if you're fun to be around, if you're easy to take and mm-hmm. fun to be around and you can take a joke and you can appreciate a joke, mm-hmm. you'll get fairly far without ever pitching one. By Isn't the way. that interesting? That doesn't mean I never pitched a joke. Right. But I had my partner. Right. So if he was pitching jokes and then I pitched one or two jokes that were really got in the script, that's pretty good right there. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so uh, I was fairly relaxed after a while and would let my mind wander. And, you know, you, when your mind's wandering and you're no, you feel no pressure, you'll if you're, that's if when you're, you're funny. funny, you'll just say stuff. You exactly. Know? That's when you're funny. And you may not say the thing that they use in the script, but you may see the, say the thing that started Absolutely. started everybody on it right. in a direction that. Yes, you know, absolutely, which is really fun. That's why I love hanging out with comedians because you, you might not be the joke at the end, but you're going to be the person that says, "Oh, this funny thing," and then they build that and that and that. And before you know, know, I'll go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Uh, So anyway, I want to play another song though, and then uh, we'll come back to our conversation. Uh, Tell us a little bit about "Fire Up to Weed." What um, inspired this song coming up? Not real life. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, I was, uh, you know, when you hear the song, it's like the whole story. I'm so literal. It's embarrassing. <laughs> um, it took me a while to even play this for the guy that I was dating. Um, well, he would be so mad when he hears the word dating, uh, <laughs> that I was going with. Gotcha. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of it's true, a little bit exaggerated here and there, but, uh, not really. <laughs> so, uh, it's some, it's somewhat self-deprecating. Uh, it's, it's not going to be on my new CD. It's not out yet. And, uh, you, you might be the first, actually. It's playing. I, I don't know. So the world, the, debut. the world premiere of Fire Up Daweed. Relationship works because we never talk Except for make me some eggs Bacon and toast And aren't you gonna wear socks To be honest and true What I like about you Is that you're always high You don't out of the house and neither do I This must be the way we want it This must be what we need I'll make the martinis and you fire up the to have 
what silences me You were with someone else I snatched you up for myself Like the last piece of meat Not that you didn't Jump at the chance Old dog that you Said, get in the car. This must be the way we want it. This must be what we need. I'll make the martinis and you fire up the weed. I think the talking things through is overrated. I'd rather be blue and medicated It took a few years and buckets of tears for me to understand Why your ex never once even complained when I took her man Patiently waiting for a sucker like me to come onto the scene. I did her a favor, and she'll be forever grateful to me. This must be the way we want it. This must be what we Doing mankind a very good deed uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that song, Tracy. <laughs> I hope so, because it's otherwise it's just embarrassing. <laughs> I love singing that to it's the crowd. It's very They're real. So surprised. Well, and it's they... very real. I mean, it's like you know, we all want to pretend that we're above not semi numbing ourselves through this crazy world. You know, and I don't know how people do it without that. I don't. Know. But you know, uh, I'm. You know, I try to do as little as possible. That's true. That's true. We try to take I care try. of ourselves. <laughs> we try. We really do. Um, so you, uh, as I said in your um, introduction, uh, an, an an, an Emmy Award winning writer, and uh, you just mentioned what you uh, actually won the Emmy for. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was working, uh, my partner and I, John Stark, were, were working on the um, Ellen show. Remember, um, she had a sitcom? I love that show. Yeah, it was really fun. She worked in a bookstore, and uh, we were there five years, five seasons. Uh-huh. And um, in the uh, season, Right before the last one, she, she had the coming, famous coming out episode. Yes. And, uh, my partner and I wrote, uh, wrote that. Well, you know, that we, we won the Emmy for it, but there were really, that's f- five, five people won the Emmy for that, for writing that. Uh-huh. Ellen won. Uh huh. And, um, 
Dava Savell and Mark Driscoll and John Stark and myself. Mm-hmm. We wrote the first half hour of that. That was a one-hour show. We we wrote the half hour that ended with her coming out in the airport. I don't know if you saw that episode, but that was quite an experience. Yeah. So let me tell you. I mean, the just the to be to do something that re, that is bringing in that much press. Yes. And attention on you. I mean, when we were writing those scripts, first of all. They let John and I be out of, we didn't have to come into the, uh, to the, you know, we didn't have to be on staff. Right. For like, they gave us three months to write the first half hour. <laughs> wow. Which meant that we would come in two days a week. We were like consultants for right, a while. Right. And we, and I remember my partner saying, oh, I'm not sure we should do this because, you know, we're going to be under a microscope yeah. when, when the time comes. And, uh, or a magnifying glass. Which is it? Uh, even both. one, actually. <laughs> so, uh, and I said, do you think that in three months we can't write a, sh- a half hour show that we think is funny, that at least amuses us? And if it amuses you and me, it's going to amuse all of our friends and, you know, 50% of the people maybe. Right. So, right. you know, I mean, how bad can we do this? And plus, look at the staff here. Everybody's going to help us. So what are you talking about? So, you know, we, we, we just did it. And, but it was, uh, scary. There were bomb scares and there were, wow. I mean, the, 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 the mail that she got, the letters were really violent. Hmm. And, uh, in fact, after a while, I don't think they showed them to her. It was, you know, wow. It's, it's so weird uh, because the, it's a different time. I mean, that was 1996. Yes. We but still that. it was 1996. It wasn't 1956. No, I, you know I, I agree mean? with you, but I mean, you look back at TV even then. Yeah. And you see how uh, some of it's unsophisticated, at least by by the way you would look at it now, well, it's 15 years ago. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, in network television, you know, I mean, it, it's it was it's protective of the culture on some level, you mm-hmm. know, and, and in order to to break ground like that, yes, you're going to get a lot of attention and press and you're going to be that network that does that. But at the same time, you're shifting the standards suddenly. And, uh, yeah, because there had been gay characters on television on, on sitcoms before, but it hadn't been the lead and it certainly right. hadn't been a woman. Well, I remember growing <laughs> up and, well, you know, watching Hollywood Squares, of course, and Paul Lind was on Hollywood Squares. <laughs> and as a kid, you didn't know what no. gay was, but you just knew he was the funny kind of quirky other kind of guy. And it really wasn't until like my twenties when I looked back and went, Oh, he was gay. And all of the parents knew that, you know, and they got that and they got his humor on that level. At least, you know, the cool parents did. But it's, you know, so you could have those kind of characters, uh, you know, but Mm -hmm. you couldn't really say you were gay and that you were going in the other room to make love to your partner in some way. A woman. (laughs) A woman or a man. A woman and a woman. (laughs) Exactly. Come on. No, no. No, it was a, it was exciting. It really was. And I had, uh, my daughter's 28 now, but she was, uh, around 11 at the time and going to an all girls school. And I was, and we weren't allowed to tell anybody that we were going to do this. And I was mm. like thinking, do I, I, do I need to go to the principal of that school and say, right. What's going on? The secret service will be here. If, you know, what yeah. happens if, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I thought because wow. I mean I'm not a celebrity, so nobody right. gave a shit that I was yeah know, right there, <laughs> you know. But I mean, I I felt like everyone was looking at me all the time. Wow. And, and they put they did <laughs> they did the script in this magenta paper, and you had to 
hold it up a certain way to catch the light <laughs> to read it. It was like then they magic had to do paper. It. it was like wow. all these ways That's of trying wild. to keep it from the public. You know. So you had this amazing, illustrious, and uh, successful sitcom writer career, and now you're doing the singing songwriter stuff. Well, I, I made enough money to to ah, be able to go back to the music business. See, you know that. You, that in you order to be a true artist, people listen to this. This is this is the lesson <laughs> of America money. these days. <laughs> Really, you have to have money, it's, you know. Yeah. When I I was in the music business in the in the eighties, and I, uh, you know, I I even had like Mel Tillis recorded one of my songs at wow. that time. He was a Huge. big country star. Uh, I still couldn't make a living yeah. at all mm. in the music business because I didn't live. I was writing country and not living in Nashville, in Nashville, and yeah. I didn't want to move to Nashville. So um, even though I actually loved Nashville, I didn't. I just didn't want to live there. So I. Uh, I went and I could make a living in television. It was easier. So, so what's it like for you now to have the freedom to do this? Um, you know, it's most of the time it's fun, but you know, here I am. It's just like I'm an older woman. <laughs> she doesn't look old, people. I'm, trust me. I'm entering into the music business, which is a shambles. Thank God for me, <laughs> you know, because it's a pioneering time. I mean, the internet True. just makes it so that nobody knows how old you are. If they like your music, that's that's, that's all, all that counts. matters. Yep. But, you know, I'm going into clubs, you know, where there's three people <laughs> and a bad sound system and playing guitar and singing by myself. And now I have a band. I mean, that's how I started out. Though. Like right. Five years ago, I was like, what am I doing? Now, do you like the writing of the songs or the performing of it? Or Like what, what part of it do you I really- love the performing. Uh-huh. Um, once a hand, I, always a hand. I people. really love the writing once I get on to something. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I the writing is always... The writing, it's like the blank page is there and you're just like, I don't know what to do. Right. You know, obviously an idea comes to you and that's all fine, but you're still, it's, it's really, really, really hard. If anybody out there thinks that songwriters or anybody writing anything, oh, well, that's just like Stephen King, he just sits down and just (laughs) pours out of him. I assure you that Stephen King is, is like a, a, you know, a victim of this, this thing (laughs) that, you know, this is hard. It is. It's really hard. And do you write lyrics first or music? I do both the same. And then uh, sometimes I take a class, uh, this woman, Harriet Schock, teaches a wonderful songwriting class. Um, and we work, start with the words there. Oh, fantastic. But, uh, you know, when I'm doing it at home alone, it's like that, oh, like, what is this about? It's just like, and I'm like playing the guitar and singing, you know, it's like that story about scrambled eggs, you know, about when Paul McCartney was writing yesterday. Exactly. And it was scrambled eggs. Well, you know, that, that, right. that is very real. <laughs> Um, is there anything else? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna go out on one more song, which is um, Tracy's Christmas song, which I think I played actually maybe last week, uh, leaving the show. But uh, we're gonna play it again because well, it is the holidays. And and actually, um, let me see the time here. I wrote this with my friend Lynn Stewart. I just need to say yes. That. And Lynn is uh, touring She's on Broadway with, now with Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, fantastic. Missy Vaughn. And uh, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I loved hearing you read that that uh, liminal thing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was it was uh, nice to share it with the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so thank you, Tracy. And I want to thank Johnny Dam, who uh, ha- runs New Dissident Radio and is the godfather of, of all of us here. And I want to thank my producer um, in absentia today, Barbara Roman. Hey, ba- hey Babs. Uh, I want to thank my husband, Bob, of course. And uh, I want to thank the Polymind Commune, all my friends and what I call my family and my tribe who support me and 
we support each other in our quest for uh, uh, t- truth, art, and the American way. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck that means. <laughs> anyway. Superman. Uh, and, and Tracy, what's the name of this song we're going to play? This is called Mama, I Know You Ain't Santa. So here you go. Mama, I know you ain't Santa. Tracy Newman. Everyone, uh, see you in January. Have a great Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever the hell you're celebrating. Go do winter solstice. It's going to be great. Uh, we love you and talk to you later. Mama, I know you ain't Santa. Santa don't have a figure like you And his eyes aren't red from crying And he don't stand just under 5'2 Mama, that pillow is slipping And your pretty blonde hair is showing through And ain't that the neck I made you And I bet Santa Don't have the flu There's a clear Christmas Sky in Atlanta Millions of stars Bright as can be Mama I know you ain't Santa I've seen him up close But Billy don't know you ain't Santa How could he? He's only two Billy don't remember Daddy But Mama, you and I do Well, thanks for the skirt you made over Christmas sky in Atlanta Millions of stars twinkling bright Mama, I know you ain't Santa But I promise I'll always remember this night Now let me play Santa for Billy Cause you make one lousy Santa But as a mama for Billy